thankful for this precious opportunity that God's given us to meet together here in the Lord's house. We thoroughly enjoyed the song service. Very much appreciate the prayer that's been offered by our brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would ask that you would pray for me during this time that I stand before you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I, I trust and hope that you do. The house of God's a good place to bring your Bible. Turn with me to the book of 2 Kings chapter 8. The book of 2 Kings chapter 8. As we labor to go forward in our study of the life and the miracles and the life of Elisha, the prophet of God. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 8. And we're going to read through verse 6. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life. This would be the great woman of Shunem that we were introduced to in 2 Kings chapter 4. Saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose... And did, after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she came forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Jehazi. We've already been introduced to him. He was the one that was smote with leprosy. He's there with the king now, Jehoram. The servant of the man of God saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Jehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. What an amazing experience in this sister's life here in 2 Kings chapter 8. As we look at these verses, I would like for us to consider three things that I believe is taught here. One, I'd like for us to consider the life that's been given to this woman and her son and how they lived their life. Two, I'd like for us to notice the obedience that they had to the word of God. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophet of God, he was the spokesman for the Lord. God spoke to his children in times past by the prophets. In a very similar way that we have the word of God today that speaks to us, the prophet spoke the word of God to the children of God. And when hearing that, she did, she did, verse 2, after the saying of the man of God. And then thirdly, I'd like for us to consider the providence and blessings of the Lord Upon the obedient children. First of all, life. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, 
saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household. This great woman of Shunem that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 4, how she had been blessed of the Lord. When you go back and read 2 Kings chapter 4, you can see how the Lord had blessed her in her life. She showed forth great faith in 2 Kings chapter 4. And we know by the truth of Scripture, if she showed forth faith, she was already a born-again child of God. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that faith is the fruit, not the root of the Spirit. I've used this illustration before, and it's worth using again. We don't walk through the forest and see an apple tree hanging in midair and say, you know, one day there's going to be a limb, then there's going to be a trunk, and then it's going to go into the ground, and then there'll be roots, and then there'll be an apple tree. We never say that. There first must be life. There first must be a tree. And the apple on that tree did not make it an apple tree. It just gives evidence it is an apple tree. When we see faith, when we see someone believing in God's word, loving other children of God, acting in goodness, we know by the truth of Scripture, there's none that doeth good, no, not one, without God's grace. But when we see these things, we're seeing the fruit of the life that God has given us. This woman... She manifested that faith. Therefore, we can understand and see that she was already a born-again child of God. God had given her eternal life, and God had blessed her in that life that she had while she lived on this earth. Now, if there's anyone that's in this chapter that has a right to declare God's goodness, surely it's her son. Her son died. And it was God through the prophet Elisha that raised her son from the dead. And here he is with life, believing in his mind, I'm sure, of God's love and care for him. He has life. And both of these, through this portion of scripture we've read, show forth their appreciation and their love toward God for the life that they were given. You know, when you think about a man like Abraham, and my family and I we were reading through the Bible. We got to Abraham and we read some things that Abraham had done, some things that he did that are not a good example for us. Some things he did are a good example for us. And we got to the point where he died there in Genesis chapter 25 and it said Abraham was a, a hundred and three score and 15 years old. That's 175 years old. And the Bible said he died. When I read that, I thought about all the life that he had lived and how he had lived that life. And in the New Testament, he's called such a great man of faith. He lived that life understanding his, his purpose. How many of us really understand our purpose in having life? You know, that's something philosophers have sought after for years and years. You know, why am I here? What is my purpose of life? Could I declare to you this morning, this woman and this son, they understood their purpose of life. They show forth they understood it by their obedience to the word of God. What is our purpose in life? You know, there was a man many years ago, his name is Solomon. You know, Solomon made a lot of mistakes. I was talking to someone this week about Solomon and how many wives he had. You know how many wives Solomon had? 700 wives. And 300 concubines, I'm going to tell you, I don't get tired of saying this, that it was way too many mother-in-laws for me. Solomon made mistakes, 
But yet God blessed Solomon with, with wisdom. And I'm going to go ahead and say this just in case my mother-in-law gets this recording. I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> Solomon made mistakes, but Solomon was a man of wisdom. Solomon in his old age was blessed to pen a book for us. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters. Solomon in that book is searching for the purpose of life. What is my purpose of life? He begins chapter 1 saying, you know, the sun has a purpose. You know, the moon has a purpose. The wind has a purpose. All nature has a purpose. The stars have a purpose. The rivers of water have a purpose. The sea has a purpose. What's my purpose? What am I doing here? And he begins to examine different philosophies and ideas of life. What, what am I doing here? What did, what's the point of life? He starts by asking, is, is, it, is it about education? Is life about me trying to learn all I can learn, to know all I can know? And he said, that can't be. He'd given himself to that, but he never knew it all. And no matter how much we learn, there'll always be much more to learn than we've learned. He said, if we give our life to that, it's going to be vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon didn't say there's anything wrong with getting an education. Education is good, but that should not be our purpose of life. Well, maybe our purpose of life is living for ourselves, to party, wine, women, and song. Solomon said this is also vanity, it's folly. Maybe life is about possessions, how much I can get. He said, I got me houses and I got me orchards. Maybe that's what the purpose of life is. But you know, no matter how much you have, you'll always want more. And whatever you have is going to be wearing out. That can't be the purpose of life. Maybe the purpose of life is, is maybe life is just a program that I have to go through. Chapter 3, he goes through life being a program. There's a time to do this, a time to do that, a season for this, a season for that. Maybe life is just a program I have to go through. But thinking of life as just a program, that's vanity and vexation of spirit. Maybe it's just about dying. Maybe it's, I'm just here just to die. And certainly if the Lord didn't come back, we'll all die. But that can't be our purpose of life. Maybe life is just about suffering and how much we suffer. You know, life, people suffer in this life. That cannot be the purpose of of life. Maybe life is about riches and how much we can gain and equity. No, that'll cause me to lose a lot of sleep at night. What is life really about? Finally, in the 12th chapter, he tells us what life is all about. Chapter 12 and verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Bottom line, fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You know why we're here? Man was made to praise God. And we should live our life for the Lord and enjoy the life that he's given us. You know, I remember years ago when I was a young man, I loved to fish. And I tell you, it was almost my entire focus of life. Go fishing, fishing, and fishing, and more fishing. I just couldn't get enough fishing. But you know, I just never got happy. But you know, now when I go fishing, I understand a lot more about my purpose of life. My fishing is a lot more enjoyable for me right now than it ever has been because now I just look at it as a hobby and not my focus of life. You know, there's nothing wrong with football, baseball, nothing wrong with the joys of life. But if that's our focus of life, it'll be nothing but sadness. But if our focus is on the Lord, we understand that our life should be lived to please Him, to glorify Him. Even the hobbies of life will get better for us. This woman and her son, they had life and God had blessed them with life. And they were enjoying their life. And Elisha comes to them and says, there's going to be a famine in the land. 
And that famine's going to be seven years. You and your son go elsewhere, sojourn. And so they went to the land of the Philistines for seven years. When Elisha told her what to do, verse 2 said she did. This person that understood what life was all about, she obeyed. You know, we mentioned earlier in our effort about man without God in him, he cannot do good. But the born-again child of God has an ability to do good and also an ability to do wrong. The born-again child of God, according to Scripture, is, to, is taught to us as a dual complex creature. Meaning this, he's one person, but he has two natures. When I say he, I mean he and she, all the born-again children of God. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5.17, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. When you look at me, you're not looking at two people. You're looking at one person. And my hope is that I've got God in me. I'm a born-again child of God. But I still got the flesh nature that I inherited from my mom and daddy. You know, my mom and daddy never had to teach me to do wrong. I said this before my brother David and I. My mom and daddy didn't have to teach us how to fight. We, we come out of the womb fighting. <laughs> my mom and daddy had to teach us to do right. And when God's grace is put in our hearts by His direct work, by the direct work of the Holy Spirit being born again, now we have an ability to do good, but yet we still battle with the, with the carnal nature. And the gospel, the word of God, is to the children of God, commanding them and instructing them to do good and teaching them how to do good. We have the ability to do good in us, but the gospel instructs the mind to teach us as children of God how to do good. And every day of our lives, dear children of God, we who have life that should be thankful to God for this life that we have, I'm thankful for the life that I have as Ronnie Benjamin Loudermilk. I'm thankful for this hope that I have. I have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every day that we live, we make decisions, and decisions we make should be for the good, to the glorification of God, and do as the Word of God teaches us. But our decisions in that does not change eternity. Our decisions we make every day, dear children of God, does not change our eternal home. It just changes our fellowship with God right now. Now, someone asked me once, they said, Brother Ronnie, do you believe in decisionism? I said, it's according to what context you're talking about. I said, if you're making reference to me deciding to be a child of God or not, no, I don't believe that because I did not have the ability or the opportunity to make that decision. If that would have been put before me, I would have made the wrong decision every time. Do you remember a time in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that Pontius Pilate put him before the people with a man that was a robber an insurrectionist that was a murderer. His name was Barabbas. You know why Pontius Pilate took that man and put him before the people with Jesus? He thought there is no way these people would condemn Jesus with this murderer, with this robber, with this insurrectionist here with Jesus in whom I could find no fault at all. But you know what the people said? Give us Barabbas. Now, brothers and sisters, if it was possible for a person to make the right decision between God and wickedness, surely with the Lord Jesus Christ standing right there before them who did no evil, that done miracle after miracle and did good and went forth doing good, surely they could have made the right decision, but they made the wrong decision. And if it was left up to us, 
Heaven or hell, guess what? Hell's going to be a big place and we're all going to be there. We'll all make the wrong decision. But it was God that looked down from glory before the world began and loved His precious children. His Son came into the world to die for us, to save us from our sins. And He saved the many. He saved the multitude. And heaven is going to be a big place. And we who are born again children of God that have that salvation in us, now we have an ability to make decisions that don't affect us as far as heaven and hell, but will affect us concerning our fellowship with God right now. This woman made a decision, and how did it affect her? Did it make her a child of God? No, it did not. She was already a child of God. It affected her concerning her life in this temporal present world. Please turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. It's actually chapter 30. Here's a verse of Scripture, and I want us to read just a few verses of Scripture concerning obedience and decisionism of children of God. Decisions they make and how it affects them here in this life. These verses of Scripture that I'm going to read to you, when I was a child, I was taught very differently than I believe today. And now that God has blessed me with light, And the clarity that I have, I don't know how in the world I interpret these verses differently, but I did. And I was like the Ethiopian eunuch when he was reading there in Isaiah chapter 53 and Acts chapter 8. He didn't understand what he read and and Philip asked him, understandest thou what thou readest? He said, how can I accept some man guide me? And I'm trusting that God would use me in the word of God. A God called preacher to help his precious children understand more about the truth. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses here speaks. Moses knows he's not going into the land of Canaan. The book of Deuteronomy, the the very name Deuteronomy means second law or second time. What Moses is doing is repeating the same laws that he had said before to this new generation that's been brought up in the wilderness. Why? Because all those 20 years old and upward have died. Their carcasses fell because of their disobedience and ungodliness. Moses says in verse 19 of Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. Meaning this, heaven and earth is my witness. I'm saying this to you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that thou, that both thou and thy seed may live. What is that about? As Moses saying, you got a choice today. Choose heaven and hell. Where are you going to go? No, it's not what he's saying. Moses knows these people are well aware that all those 20 years old and upward have died because of disobedience. God had took away their natural life. You know, God chastens his children, and if they continue in disobedience, he can take their natural life away from them. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. didn't say their soul and spirit fell. No, their souls and spirits went to heaven. (laughs) Their bodies fell in the wilderness. And Moses said, look, I'm telling you this day, and heaven and earth is my witness. I've set before you life and death. I've told you how to live. And you know if you disobey God, you're going to die. Choose life. What is he saying? Choose a life of fellowship and obedience with God. Do as God says, that it that both thou and thy seed may live. Not only would it affect them, it would affect the generation after. 
After reading that text this morning, is that easier to understand what he's saying? Moses is not saying heaven and hell. No, he's saying you children of God obey what God says right now. Let's turn to another one. Let's go to the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. Just before Joshua's death, the children of Israel are there in the land of Canaan, and they're disobeying God again. <laughs> it looks like at some point they would learn their lesson. I got a good friend. He, he was in Indiana. He's moved back to southwest Mississippi, Louisiana area now. His name is Elder Danny Wisner. Brother Danny said he, his daddy called one day and told him, he said, you know, son, I've got started reading the Bible. And he said, I just figured I'd start in Genesis, start reading through. And he said, you know what? He said, um, those children of Israel, there in the book of Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, he said, boy, the Lord really blessed them. And he said, didn't that mess up and start doing wrong? And he said, you know what the Lord do? He said, boy, the Lord give them a whooping. He said, and then they'd start doing good again. And he said, and the Lord would bless them again. He said, then they'd do wrong again. And the Lord would give him another whooping. And he said, then they'd start doing good again. And Brother Danny said, well, where are you at right now reading, Daddy? He said, well, right now they're doing good. But he said, but I'm afraid there's another whooping coming. <laughs> Here we have the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. God has blessed them. Joshua said in verse 15, if it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord. Whoa, that sets the context. If it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Just choose. It doesn't matter. If it's evil for you to serve the Lord, it doesn't matter who you're serving. Well, the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, or on the other side of Jordan, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, a little later in this chapter, they said, we will serve the Lord also. And Joshua said, no, you can't do that. You can't serve these gods you're serving and serve God also. Joshua said, you've got to make this choice. If you're not going to serve God, it doesn't matter who you choose to serve. It's going to be wrong. He said, but my, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, let me ask you, is this saying Joshua was the only child of God there? Is this saying Joshua and his family were the only ones there that went to heaven? No. It's saying these children of God made the wrong choice. They lived after the flesh. They did not obey God. Now, these children of God... Where are they right now? Their souls and spirits are in heaven. What did they miss out on? They missed out on fellowship with God in obeying Him in His Word. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. We'll look at another text. Isaiah chapter 1. Notice with me in, in verse 19. Isaiah would write to the children of Israel. He said, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Is this a choice of heaven and hell? No, it's doing as God says. If ye be willing and obedient, obeying God, you're going you're gonna to eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse, you'll cease to be children of God. No, that's not what he said. You'll be devoured with a sword. Meaning this, the judgment of God will be upon you in this temporal world. Another text, Romans chapter 11. 
We've read three in the Old Testament. Let's look at one in the New Testament. Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 11 has told the hearer of the church at Rome of how the children of Israel were blessed in the Old Testament by the Lord and how they disobeyed God and, and how they were cut off. What were they cut off from? Eternal life? No, they were cut off from God's temporal blessings and knowledge. And the Gentiles were grafted into those blessings of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul warns the Gentiles. He warns them, look, if God cuts them off because of their disobedience, don't be high-minded because He could cut you off the same way He cut them off in your disobedience. This that we have, this New Testament church. Notice, we're Gentiles. We have the New Testament church. If God was able to cut off the Israelites because of their disobedience, God is just as easy to cut us off in our disobedience for what we're enjoying in the New Testament church, which teaches me we should take heed and do as God said. Notice what he said in verse 22 of Romans chapter 11. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. The goodness is what they were enjoying. The severity was, what was upon the children of God among Israel. On them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if, if, contingent, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. This teaches us that we can enjoy the blessings of God by making the right choice, making the decision to serve God, be faithful to him, loving God, loving his church. And we'd be blessed, blessed in a temporal sense, not to become children of God. We've already said that. We've already proven that point. But to be near and close to God. You know what I've said here, and we'll go back to 2 Kings chapter 8, is one of the primary differences between the primitive Baptist and other Baptists. I had someone ask me yesterday, they came to me and, and they said, Ronnie, uh, what, is, what is primitive? What, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, some people, when they see primitive, they, they think we all drive wagons. You know, we drive wagons to church. <laughs> I remember an old gospel song that says, We're, all the wagon tracks at church are gone. <laughs> they think we just drive around in wagons. And I, I guess they think we're like those folks that live up there in Pennsylvania, the Amish people. But I said, no, 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 that's, that's not it. We, we drive vehicles. We've got air conditioning church house. We've got, we got restrooms. You know, I guess they thought the old pass was that pass going from the building to the outhouse, you know. The old pass. Get in the old pass. That's what it means. No, that's not what it means. Primitive doesn't mean that. Have you ever been driving down the road, and I mentioned this to them yesterday, and looked at a sign that said antiques? Primitive? You know what that means? That means they're unaltered and unchanged from their original state. That's what that means. Primitive Baptists means that we're unaltered and unchanged from the original state of the New Testament church. Yesterday, they, someone asked me, what's, what's some of the differences? And I said, well, when you walk in, you're going to notice some differences. I said, but there's three big differences between primitive Baptists, other Baptists, and other religions. One, the primitive Baptists teach there's a difference in the cause and effect of eternal salvation. The cause of eternal salvation is God's direct work. The effect is those good things we see in someone's life. People in the world teach these effects as the cause. You'll have to act in faith. You have to believe. You have to confess. Well, we teach those are the effects as the evidence of eternal salvation. Another thing the primitive Baptists teach that other people in the world do not teach is we teach the sufficiency of Calvary. What Jesus done on the cross, bam, it's enough. Whether I know about it or believe it or not, 
God. If Jesus died for all my sins, he died for them all. And nothing can be laid in my charge. Someone says, well, you got to believe it. I said, was unbelieving a sin? Well, yes, it is. I said, well, you just said he died for all my sins. If he died for all my sins, he died for my unbelief too. And the Bible teaches that if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. Why, he cannot deny himself. If we're in him and we belong to him, hallelujah, he cannot deny himself. To deny one that he died for will be just like the father denying that Jesus is his son. It cannot happen. The third difference is what I've really set before you. Is understanding the difference in God's eternal dealings with his people and the temporal dealings with his people. Understanding that there's more than one salvation taught in the Bible. That there is an eternal salvation that's taught in Scripture. That God, before the world began, chose his people. That God came into this world and died for those people. And the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to those people. And those same people will be with him in heaven without the loss of one. That's eternal context. But there is a temporal context of salvation taught in Scripture where God saves His children on a regular basis. In our obedience, sometimes God saves us just because it's His ability and will to do so. God has saved me many times. Well, I know I didn't ask Him to do it. He just done it. But God has saved me through other people as well. Let me ask you, there in Matthew chapter 14, when the Lord comes to the disciples and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and they said, it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. Jesus said, you know, fear not, it is I. Peter, he said this, if it be thou, Lord, bid me to come to you. You know what Peter's really saying here? Lord, if it's you, let me tell you what you need to tell me to do. Bid me to come to you. And Jesus said, all right, come. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew Peter couldn't stay on that water. Peter, he steps out, and Peter began to sink when he saw the winds boisterous. What did Peter say? Lord, save me, I'll perish. Now, you think Peter was wanting to be saved from, from hell that day? No. He wouldn't be saved from the waters, from drowning. I told someone once, Jesus didn't save Peter for heaven that day. Peter was already saved to be in heaven one day. Jesus actually saved him from going to heaven because <laughs> he was on his way. If the Lord hadn't reached out and, and saved him, that salvation is not an eternal salvation. That was a temporal deliverance given by God. I want you to compare some scriptures with me concerning these two subjects of salvation. And let's look at this woman here who by the providence of God was blessed temporally in her life. In her obedience. She did as God commanded her to do. She comes back and she wants her land back. And it just so happened. Jehazi's here talking to this king about all the miracles that Elisha did, about this miracle that happened to this woman, and that woman walked right up. Isn't that an amazing event? That God and his providence would bless this woman in her obedience? Turn with me real quick to a verse of scripture found in the book of Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 13. Isaiah 43, 13 reads, Yea, before the day was, I am he. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? And I'm going to be honest with you, I just picked the wrong verse. It's verse 11 that I wanted. Verse 11, it's talking about the same person. I, even I, 
am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. That's singular. Besides God, there is no Savior. When it comes to saving me from an eternal burning hell, I can't do it myself. The deacons of the church can't do it. My mom and daddy can't do it. No man can do it. My dependence and hope is in the Lord. He's the only one that's able to save me. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9 and verse 27. Nehemiah and the children of Israel here are rehearsing all the blessings of the Lord upon them during the days of the judges and how they disobeyed and rebelled against God. Verse 26, they cast God's law behind their backs. They slew the prophets that testified against them to turn them to the Lord. And they wrought great provocations. That means they provoked God to anger them, and God judged them. Therefore thou, the Lord, delivered them into the hand of their enemy who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, they cried unto, unto thee, cried unto the Lord. Thou heardest them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors. Plural. That's plural. That's more than one. Brother Ronnie, I thought that said Savior, and besides God, there is no Savior. These are Saviors, plural. Who's this talking about? This is talking about Ehud, Shamgar, Gideon, Samson, those men that God sent to be Saviors for them in a temporal context. Those men did not save them from hell, but those men saved them from the temporal troubles of life. I talked to someone last night on the telephone, they were making reference to a man of God that was being ordained to preach. And someone asked him, if someone asked you, are you saved? What is your answer? He said, my answer is from what? From what are you referring me being saved from? If you're referring of me being saved from hell, I've got to hope that God has saved me from hell. But when it comes to temporal troubles of life, God has saved me many times. And he saved me many times through other people. I believe God saved me from an ungodly life because he gave me good parents. He gave me a good mama and daddy that taught me the way to go. And I thank God for my mama and daddy. I wasn't always happy about my mama and daddy. You know, I remember one time I was in junior high school. You know, in junior high school, you get a little bit too big for your britches. You're not too proud of your mom and daddy. Not too happy there, your mom and daddy. And I remember one day I was getting off the school bus and my papa and daddy had been fishing, and daddy, of course, chewed tobacco. He had tobacco spit all over his truck door, and his boat hitched up in the back, you know, the fishing pole sticking out of the boat. One of the boys on the bus said, is that your daddy? I said, no, that's my uncle. <laughs> you know, papa gets out. Papa always wore those low back overalls, you know, and he always wore, you know, those white T-shirts. You know, he got out and just, just barely walking, you know, and all that dirt off the worm bucket all over his britches. And I was like slipping in the truck and getting in between them. It, it didn't take long. I began to feel ashamed of myself for doing that. I apologized to Daddy for doing things like that. I told him I was sorry, and I didn't deserve such a good mom and daddy. God used my mom and daddy to save me many times. You know, God used a gospel preacher. To save me from false teaching. There was a time in my life I didn't believe the truth. And I felt the condemnation of sin. I felt like hell was going to swallow me up. And God used a gospel preacher to save me from that experiential condemnation. That gospel preacher did not save me from hell. But he saved me from the fear of it. 
You know, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. Continue therein. For in doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If that's about heaven and hell, you got a man that's called to preach, that's been ordained, that's going to hell. What work? That man, Timothy, was called upon to be a savior of the children of God to save them from false teachers. I had a man come to me once many years ago. And he said, how many people have you saved in your ministry? Brother Ronnie, I said, the same number you have from hell. Absolutely zero. But I have saved some people from you. He didn't like that a bit. <laughs> but it was the truth. I'm not trying to save people from hell. I'm not trying to populate heaven. That's God's work. But I am trying to save people from false teachers that they can enjoy the truth of God right now in their life. And in that context, yeah, I can be a savior. You can too. Turn with me to another verse of Scripture. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, and Joseph was considering putting away his wife privately while she's with child. Mary is his espoused wife. I mean, they're engaged to be married. Now she's with child. Joseph, he didn't want to make a public example of her. He's a good man. I'm just going to put her away privately. Nobody's going to know about all this. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, don't, don't, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Take a Mary to be thy wife. Why? That which she conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. I asked a man once. I said, did she bring forth a son? She did. God said she shall. What do they call his name? God said, thou shalt call his name Jesus. They called his name Jesus. And he shall, not might, not maybe, not could, he shall save his people from their sins. It didn't look like God needed any help with that. Does, that. does that look about right to you? The Lord didn't need any help with that. Jesus came into the world and done it by himself. Matter of fact, the Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins. Jesus done it alone. Turn with me to the book of James chapter 5 and verse 20. The book of James, right after the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 20. In verse 19, James tells the congregation he pastors, which is the church at Jerusalem. He said, Brother, if any, do you, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Wow, that's amazing. And I thought Matthew 121 says Jesus did it all. Here it says somebody else can do something. What is James talking about? Is James talking about saving somebody from hell, Brother John? Mm -mm. Talking about saving somebody from the error of their way. It'd be very godly if you saw me going in the wrong way. If you come to me and said, Brother Ronnie, that's, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. That's the wrong way to go. And you use the word of God to correct me and you convert me, convert my mind. And by the way, the subject of conversion is not about eternal salvation. Nowhere in the Bible is the word convert, conversion used in eternal context. It's all in a temporal context. It's the child of God who has two natures using the mind to turn toward the truth of God. And James said, look, if one of you do convert a sinner from the error of his way, thou shalt save a soul from death. What's that death? Being separated from the fellowship of God. Death is about separation. You convert someone and save them from being separated from the fellowship of the church. Separate them. Save them from being separated from the truth of the gospel. Wow, that's our responsibility. 
Look with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace you are saved through the faithfulness of God. The word faith appears in the Bible three ways. The faith wants to deliver to the saints, the body of truth. The faith that we have is the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And the faithfulness of God is through the faithfulness of God to the covenant that He made and to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that every one of the elect will have salvation in them. For by grace you are saved through that faithfulness. And notice, and that not of yourselves. It wasn't of me. I didn't do it. It's not my faith. It was God's faithfulness. It was God's love, God's mercy. That's why I'm saved. I am what I am by the grace of God. It's not of yourselves. Look with me, though, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. When the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, excuse me, is preaching to a congregation. And these children of God, these are children of God. They're born again children of God. The Bible said they were devout men out of every nation. What is a devout man? It's a good man doing good. Without God in them, there's none that doeth good. If you see a man doing good, you got a born again child of God. Devout men out of every nation. These people were pricked in their hearts at the preaching of the gospel, asking, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to obey God? Peter told them, repent and be baptized. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your ways of understanding. Turn to the Lord. Be baptized and be identified with God's people. And notice in verse 40, he said, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves. I thought Ephesians chapter 2 said it's not of yourselves. An eternal salvation is not of myself. In a temporal sense, me, the child of God, making a decision to serve God, it's of myself. I have to make a decision. Save yourselves and that decision, me making to follow God and obey God, it saves me, not from hell, but from an untoward or crooked generation. By joining yourself with the church, joining yourself with the disciples of the Lord, you get saved from a lot of things out in the world. Could I say me being at church every Sunday morning saved me from a lot of troubles out in the world? Could you amen that? Amen. Being at the house, somebody amen me in the parking lot. <laughs> i tell you what, we got folks in the parking lot that know the truth. That's the truth. Being at church on Sunday morning has saved me from a lot of troubles. Peter said, save yourselves. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 will compare two other scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote to this young brother, this minister of the gospel, and tells him of eternal salvation. Notice in verse 3, he said, For we ourselves also were sometimes. What that means is at one time, this is what we were. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Wow, that sounds like some good folks, doesn't it? That's what we all are without God's grace. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness as we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. What is He talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit at that time, we're born again by the direct work, cleansing our inner man and doing a renovation, taking out that heart of flesh that's in enmity with God and giving us a heart in the spirit of the Lord, a heart of flesh that can be touched by the gospel. A cleansing and a renovation was done by the direct work of the Holy Spirit. And notice what the Apostle Paul said there. It's not by works of righteousness. 
Not any work I've done. That was done by God's grace. By His grace alone. Not by my work. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Not by works of righteousness. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, well, we've got people obeying God. What do we got? We've got children of God, right? Born again children of God. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. My daddy used to say this, I like for you to do good when I'm around, but he said, sure doesn't make me feel good when I'm not around, and you still do good. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation or corrupt, corrupt and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I thought Paul said it's not, it's not by works. Here he says, work it out. What is this talking about in Philippians chapter 2? It's about children of God working the salvation we have on the inside to the outside for others to see. Notice how he ends that. In verse 15, shining light in the world. Letting your light shine. Remember, I think it was Jesus that said that back over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let me ask you, is it possible to let light shine out if you don't already have light in? If I'm driving down the road and I see light shining out of a window of a house, do they need electricity in the house? Do they need some light bulbs in the house? Or have they already got light in the house and it's just shining out the window for me to see that they have light in the house? We as children of God should labor continually to work in following God in obedience to work out the salvation He has put within. The others who sit on the outside. And, and notice I love this verse where it says, For it is God which worketh. That's perfect present tense. Not only has God worked the work of eternal salvation, but God's grace will continually supply for you to be able to obey Him. God has never called on you, dear child of God, to do anything that His grace is not able to bless you to do. It worketh in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. So if we fail God, whose fault is it? Oh, it's got to be God's fault. I failed God. It's God's fault. It was God that determined that I'd fall Him. No, God has done everything and is doing His work in me that I'm able to do good. If I fail God, it is my fault, that's whose fault it is. I'm the one that failed, not God. If I'm not letting God's light shine in my life, if I'm disobeying Him, if I make a decision to go away from the Lord, it's not God's fault, it's my fault. I made the wrong decision. But the Apostle Paul was saying, make a decision. Work out your own salvation. Let people see that salvation. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, the Apostle Paul tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ when he ascended back to heaven. He tells those Hebrews in verse 12 that they were not redeemed by the blood of goats and calves, but you redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it said, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. That's when he ascended back to heaven. But notice when he entered into the holy place, he entered having obtained eternal redemption for us. Having this past tense. Meaning when Jesus went back to heaven, he already purchased eternal salvation. He obtained. We are redeemed. Jesus did not make us redeemable. Jesus did not make us reconcilable. 
Jesus did not make us ransomable. No, Jesus redeemed us. Jesus reconciled us. Jesus has ransomed us. Jesus has obtained eternal redemption for us. Praise God. As no preacher said in times past, he got the work done. He said it is finished. That should be enough right there. John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus said it is finished. That's enough. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is going to tell you why the Apostle Paul would preach the gospel. I had a cousin of mine told me years and years ago, he said, you know, Ronnie, he said, if I believe what you believed, he said, I, I, I just, I quit preaching. I don't even know why you preach. Why do you preach? You're not getting anybody into heaven. Why are you preaching? This is the verse I quoted to him. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, Therefore I endure all things, all that I suffer, all that I go through, all that I do, I endure it for the elect's sakes. What is he saying? I endure what I endure. I go through what I do for the children of God's sakes. That they may also obtain, I thought Jesus had obtained, Brother Ronnie, he did. That they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with the eternal glory they've already got in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? I endure all things to preach the truth to the children of God so that they can have the joy of their eternal salvation right now. That they can have the instruction, that they can have the peace that's found in fellowship with the Lord right now in a temporal context. Back to 2 Kings chapter 8. This woman and her son, they lived their life. They obeyed the word of the Lord. When they come back home, I mean, their land and all that they had, had there was gold. Man, the Lord and His providence blessed them here in obedience. They were blessed. They were blessed in a temporal context. And they got it, got it all, all back. You know, this king right here, I don't think it was just in the goodness of his heart. I think it was, I think it was the Lord that worked and worked to give this woman a, a great blessing. And when you consider this, this truth, this truth, this blessed truth of all that God is able to do for us right now, it doesn't really matter who is the king. It doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter who's the governor. What matters is God's God. God is God. And when we do right and we serve him, God is able to bless us in a way that no one can take it away. Now, for me, what's your decision, Brother Ronnie? I want to serve God. I still deal with me every day. I got this hindrance. It's Brother Ronnie. My biggest enemy in serving God is Ronnie. You got an enemy serving God too. It's, it's you. You know, everybody likes to say the devil made me do it. Hey, stop blaming the devil. Give him credit for a lot of things we do on our own, okay? I got a big enemy. It's me. Yeah, the devil's on the job. He's always on the job. There's wicked angels on the job. We're living in a wicked world. But brothers and sisters, as this woman made a decision to serve God, to do as God said, and she was blessed, let us go forward in our life that God has given us to live and serve God faithfully believing in God's rich blessings and care for us until that day we see Him face to face. You know what's going to happen then? My warfare be over. I won't have to fight with Brother Ronnie anymore. I'll be at rest with the Lord Jesus Christ. May God richly bless you is our prayer. If there's anyone here this morning who'd like to come forward and ask for a home at Union Grove Primitive Baptist Church, if you believe this truth, 
And you believe God blesses the obedient. I'm going to tell you one way we show forth our obedience is following Him in baptism and being part of His church, the New Testament church.